Well, it is good to be with you, Two Cities Church, both here in person and those who are joining us online. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and what a great video that was of Jeff. I love how Jeff said, we flourish in serving. We, for the last five weeks, we have been in a series on identity, and the identity we are going to cover today is servant. Now, for the last five weeks, we talked about how our identity is rooted in the gospel, And the first idea we talked about was worshiper. And that's the idea that you are worshiping something. You are a worshiper. It's just a matter of what exactly you're worshiping. Whether you're worshiping worshiping the creation or whether you're worshiping the creator. Uh, And then we talked about family, which is the idea that if you are a Christian, you have been adopted by God into your family. And you should prioritize the relationship that you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we talked about witness, which is the idea that you are called to leverage your budget and your calendar to initiate spiritual conversations and share the gospel with your friends and your roommates and your classmates and your coworkers. And then last week we talked about steward, which is the big idea that we are called to steward or leverage the talents that God has given you to bring glory to the kingdom of God. And so today we're going to be talking about service. Now, all of us in here love to be served well. Like, why does, why does everyone love Chick-fil-A? Well, if you ask someone why they love Chick-fil-A, they will tell you, you know, they love their, their waffle fries. They love their chicken nuggets. They love the chicken minis. People will love the, the lemonade or the peppermint milkshakes in the wintertime. But when you talk with people and they tell you why they love Chick-fil-A, they will say, I just love Chick-fil-A's service. Chick-fil-A has the most consistent, just kind service that you can find. I mean, their drive-through is the most efficient drive-through that there is. I have, which is really convenient during COVID. Um, I have a buddy. He lives in Atlanta, and his entire job is to make the Chick-fil-A drive-through more efficient. And so we love, regardless of your background, we love to be served well. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And so the passage we are going to read is John chapter 13. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab grab those and flip there. This is a pretty well-known passage where Jesus uh, washes his disciples' feet. Now, I really believe, I'm really excited about this passage because I believe that this passage can transform your relationships. I think that this passage and the truths that we are going to see here can transform the relationship that you have with your spouse or the relationship that you have with your friends or your coworkers. I believe that the living in accordance with the truths that we are about to see in this passage can change everything. And so let's jump into John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the setting here is Jesus, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples. Now, theologians debate on whether or not this was the same meal as the Last Supper. Most people agree that given the amount of parallels between this passage and the Last Supper, it's probably the same occasion. It says in verse 1 that Jesus knew that his hour had come. And so what John is doing here is he is introducing a sense of climax to the gospel. Because just hours after this, you know, this passage here, Jesus' betrayal and his crucifixion and his resurrection, well, that'll happen three days later, but all those things are shortly to follow this passage. And up to this point in the gospel, John, uh, Jesus' ministry had mostly been directed outward. 
He had, he had not been neglecting his disciples by any means, but up until this point, his ministry was directed outward. It says here, it says that he turns to face his earth. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Yeah. And so verse one signals the end of Jesus's outward ministry as he turns to face his own and show them his love. And so let's go to verse two. It says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So verse 3 says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now, we can't just skip over this verse because this verse shows the sovereignty of God in the death of Jesus. Jesus' sovereignty and his rule and his lordship here is absolute. Don't ever think that Jesus' betrayal and his, resur- and his crucifixion were things that were out of Jesus' control. All of these events were events that were sovereignly ordained by God for the purposes of God and for our redemption. Another thing that you can't miss here is that before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he knew who was going to betray him. He knew that, Jesus, that Judas was specifically the one that was going to betray him, which makes what he's about to do here just even that more stunning. Now, just a little bit of context on foot washing. So in Jesus' time, proper etiquette taught that if you showed up at someone's house, if you had a guest, then that guest, their feet needed to be washed. And it was normally washed by a, by a slave. Washing someone's feet was a very humble task. It was seen as such a shameful thing that they didn't even ask Jewish slaves to do it. They pretty much only asked Gentile slaves to wash people's feet. And, you know, even, even, even today, you know, we, we don't like feet. There was a study done in the UK in 2013, and they took a poll of 1,000 people, and they, they polled them on the most attractive and unattractive parts of the human body. And what they found was that 75% of people thought that feet were the least attractive human body part. And the second least attractive thing was kneecaps, actually, which is sort of interesting. And so, so, so we ha- what we have to understand is that washing feet was a humiliating task that no one wanted to do. So keep that in mind as we are about to see Jesus' servant-hearted love on display. Let's go back to verse 4. It says, Jesus laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my, feet also, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was about to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So there's so much to unpack here. But the first thing that I want you to see is that the essence of love is service, not attraction. The essence of love is service, not attraction. The last night that Jesus was on earth, when he wanted to show his disciples that he loved them, he served them by washing feet. Now, in this moment, was washing feet an attractive thing to do? 
No, it absolutely was not an attractive thing to do. You see, attraction is not love. Attraction is motivated by self-love, whereas love is motivated by other love. Now think about it. When you, when you had your first crush in middle school or high school or whenever it was, what was it that motivated that? It was attraction. It was, what can this person do for me? You know, this per, it sure would be great if this person would go with me to the middle school dance, which was super awkward. The, that is what attraction is. It is self-interested. And as I've shared up here before, I first met with my wife, Olivia, when she was serving as a greeter at Two Cities about four years ago now. And when I first saw Olivia, the, the initial feeling that I felt was attraction. It was self-interest. It was self-oriented. I thought, wouldn't it be great for me to go on a date with this girl who's greeting at church? But the feeling that I felt in that moment was not love. It was just attraction. Now, in our marriage now, the primary way that Olivia feels loved by me is not by me telling her that I think she's attractive. My love language is physical touch. Her love language is not. And so half the time, she will feel more loved by me if, if I just leave her alone and let her sit on the couch and don't touch her. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just sort of how it goes. Olivia feeling loved my, by me now is determined primarily by how much I do or do not serve her. You want to know what makes her not feel loved by me? If I neglect to clean the shower curtain or if I neglect to fold the clothes but when I get them out of the laundry before they get all wrinkled or if I neglect unclogging her hair from the drain once a month or she really feels not loved if I neglect changing the sheets on the bed, which she wants to do like every two weeks. And I'm like, every two weeks? Like if I were to tell you how often that I change my sheets in college, you would think less of me. So I won't do that. <laughs> Olivia feels most loved by me when I do these things out of service to her. And here we see from Jesus that as he washes his disciples' feet, that the essence of love is service. It's not attraction. His love is other-oriented. Another thing that we see here is that servant-hearted love requires humility. Servant-hearted love requires humility. It says in verse 4 that Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So the interesting thing here is that by the time that Jesus had taken off his outer garments, he would have been clothed like a slave. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like for the disciples to see this? And we see here that Peter responds to Jesus, and he's confused. He's just like, Lord, like, what are you doing? Like, surely you're not going to wash, wash my feet. And th the reason that he's so confused is because it's not the action that is startling. It's who is doing the action. Now, if I were to come home from work one day and look in my backyard and see one of you mowing my grass, I would think, well, this is sort of odd, and, but I appreciate this, and this makes me feel loved. I mean, I would appreciate it. But if I were to come home from work one day and look in my backyard and see Bill Gates out there mowing my grass... I would be shocked. I would say, why on earth is this billionaire here mowing my grass? This guy is so rich and so wealthy that he could afford to pay 10,000 people a day to come mow my grass. The thing that is stunning in this passage is not the act. It is who is doing it. That is the scandal of what we see here. Because, you know, the thing is that Jesus, in this moment, he is about to die the next day. Jesus deserves glory and power. Jesus deserves to be treated like royalty. But here, 
we have Jesus, who is the bread of life, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the light of the world. Here we have him kneeling at the feet of his disciples, washing dirty feet. This is a stunning example of humility. But what we see here is that servant-hearted love requires humility. Another thing we can't miss here is that only Christ can make you clean. Only Christ can make you clean. Peter says, Jesus, you're washing my feet? To which Jesus says in verse 7, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So what Jesus is doing here is he is pointing Peter to the cross. Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't understand this now, but in just a few hours you are going to see that my ultimate service to you will be the cross. You see, Jesus washing his disciples' feet was the clearest example or the clearest picture of the cross that they would have that night. Because in just a few hours, Jesus would take off the garments of glory. He would lay aside his power and his right to rule. And he would clothe himself in the garments of sin and shame. Jesus, though he was righteous, takes upon himself your unrighteousness. Jesus, though he was sinless, takes upon himself your sin. Though he was innocent, he takes upon himself your guilt. And then he goes to the cross and dies the death that you and I deserve in our place so that you can be washed by his blood. He does this out of, you, out of love for you and for me so that you can be clean. And so as Jesus washes the disciples' feet, Peter, he, he just can't believe what's going on. Peter is baffled. Charles Wesley, he was a minister in the 1700s, and he wrote a handful of hymns. And I'm sure that in this moment that Peter felt pretty similar to how Charles Wesley felt when he wrote a hymn that said, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? This is a stunning example of love. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Only Christ can make you clean. Something that's really interesting here is that right after this passage in John 13, is John 14, so it's the, it's the same night. So right after Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, is John 14, which is the familiar verse where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says, do you need to be washed? Yes. Do you need to be cleansed? Yes. But I am the only one that can clean you. Like, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Only Christ can make you clean. Let's go to verse 12. Now Jesus is about to explain to his disciples what he was doing. Verse 12 says, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
So, so after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he makes it really clear. He says, I'm your teacher and Lord. And if serving is not beneath me, then certainly serving is not beneath you. You see, the, the clear truth that we see here, this is so simple, it's straight from the text, is that your life should be marked by serving others. Your life should be marked by serving others. Now, serving, serving others is hard. Serving others does not come naturally to us. Selfishness comes a lot more natural to us than serving others does. Now, I've been asking myself this question, and I think that you should ask yourself, why am I not serving others as often as I probably should? Why am I not serving others as often as I probably should? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. Uh, for some of us, it's because serving others is expensive. If you serve others well, it will affect your bank account. A couple weeks ago, um, you know, this, this has been challenging for me. Serving others is expensive. A couple weeks ago, or the, week, the weekend before last, um, we hosted a baby shower at my house, which is quite an event. And the week leading up to the shower, there were a handful of purchases that needed to be made. And so about a week before the shower, I saw an Amazon, you know, uh, transaction. So I have it set up on my phone to where if either Olivia or myself buy something, I just get a notification. And so I saw about a week beforehand, it's like Amazon, $40. And I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a nice gift. This is good. And then a couple days later, Olivia goes to the grocery store to buy food for the shower, and I get another transaction. And I'm just, I'm just like, okay, well, I guess we do need food for this shower. All right. And so I'm, but I'm already starting to add in my head, you know, how much money this is costing us. And then the day before the shower, I get a notification on my phone from Party City for $59. <laughs> and, and I'm just, and because what Olivia bought was balloons and decorations. And I'm just like, $59 for balloons? Like, why don't you just go to Dollar Tree? I mean, that's what I would have done. And so at this point, my desire to be generous is running out. I mean, my desire to serve our friends well is, is almost gone. And then later that afternoon, Olivia says, hey, would you mind going to the store and getting us a couple of bags of ice? And I just wanted to be like, no, <laughs> I, we, we have spent enough on this shower. <laughs> Serving others well is expensive and it doesn't come naturally. And obviously I need to grow in this. Uh, for, for others, it's because serving others is inconvenient and time consuming. You know, some of you don't serve at church or don't serve one, attend one because you actually have crazy schedules. You know, your schedule is just crazy. You're in grad school. You actually don't have any time to serve. But some of you don't serve or want to attend one or don't serve at all just because it's inconvenient, just because you don't want to. If you serve others well, it will affect your schedule and it will affect your, your free time. What Jesus is specifically addressing here in this passage is that for some of you, the reason you don't serve others more is because you think that serving others is beneath you. Now, if we were to have a conversation, you would never vocalize that out loud. But if we were to look at your life, it would be clear that the reason you don't want to serve others is because you think that it's beneath you. You might think, well, you know, I know this family just went through a really hard time, or I know they just lost a loved one, but I don't really want to go visit them myself. I'll just give you $20 and let you go do it. Or you might think, well, you know, I know that this, mess, this is a messy situation, and I could really serve this family well here, but... I don't really want to do it myself, so I'll just write a check. You see, serving others should not be beneath us. J.I. Packer, who is one of my favorite theologians, he passed away less than two weeks ago. He said this. He said, what we have to realize is that we grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. Christians, we might say, 
grow greater by getting smaller. Your life should be marked by serving others. Another big idea here is that oftentimes the way that you serve God is by serving others. In what you do with your career or with your money-making potential, who is that for? God has not called you to just make your money and then give your 10% to the church and then spend the rest of your money and the rest of your time spending your money on you and spending your time on you. God has not called just the staff at Two Cities Church to do the ministry that we need to do here in Winston-Salem. If you are a Christian, God has called you to leverage your skills and your job and your money to advance the kingdom of God through serving other people, through serving the people that you're around every day on a daily basis. And one, one of the more things that we see in this passage is that Jesus gave more than he took. Jesus was doing the serving more than he was doing the receiving. And a question that I found very helpful to sort of diagnose whether or not I'm serving others well is I ask myself this. Do I give more than I take? Do I give more than I take? Now, I'm fortunate to have grown up in a very supportive family. You know, whenever we go home to visit my family, my, I've stopped by and visit my grandmother, and she sends me back to Winston-Salem with a, a bag of party mix and a container full of chicken salad that she's made. And then, you know, I swing by my parents' house, and they send us back here with a meat full or a cooler full of meat because we, we have a cattle farm, and so we have a pretty much limitless supply of beef. And so I can honestly say that at this stage in my life, I have been the recipient of so much generosity. I can say that I have definitely received more than I have given. But I'm really honestly trying to reverse that trend. And so my question to you is when you think about your relationships, do you give more than you take? With your friends or your roommates, do you give more than you take? When you go on a trip somewhere or, you know, drive to the mountains to see the leaves, are you, are you always the one that's sort of avoiding volunteering to drive? You know, when, when you have a friend who's moving out of their apartment, are you sort of trying to get out of it, and, but all the while expecting them to help you out when you sort of move out of your apartment? With your neighbors, do you give more than you take? In your relationships with your parents or your grandparents or your siblings, do you give more than you take? If you're married with your spouse, do you give more than you take? Do you expect your spouse to serve you more than you are serving them? Whose preferences are more important in your relationship? Whose comfort or happiness are you more devoted to? With your coworkers, do you give more than you take? Are you the one that shows up to the Christmas party without bringing anything? <laughs> Is your coworker always the one who's bringing a snack to the workroom and you're just always receiving the snack? You're never the one bringing it yourself? I feel convicted by this person. At my work, we have a really sweet lady. Her name is Deb. And it seems like every week, Deb is bringing something to the workroom, whether it be cookies or a cake or a pie. And it's, it's, it's great, but it's also really unfortunate because I end up eating like three chocolate chip cookies before lunchtime. But this is an example of what it looks like to give more than you take. The point of all this is that in view of Jesus' example, we should be a people who give more than we take. Whenever your funeral comes around, whether it be one year from now or five years from now or a hundred years from now, whenever it is, I know that you would love to be thought of as someone who is always giving, serving, giving, serving. Verse 14 says, If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
Something that I think that can really help you give more than you take is by asking this very simple question. What can I do to serve you? If you start asking this question, then it will change the relationships that you have. You know, for teenagers or preteens, you know, I know we have some in here, teenagers or preteens, what would it look like if before, when dinner was being prepared, you looked at your parents and said, hey, what can I do to serve you here? How can I help out? What would it look like, you, what would it look like for you on, on, on the weekend if your parents are about to do yard work to say, hey, how can I serve here? What can I do to serve you? With your neighbors, what if you asked your neighbors, hey, is there anything around the house I can help you with? Is there any particular way that I can serve you? You see, the cool thing about this is with your neighbors specifically, it will create mission opportunities for you. And as you serve your neighbors well, it will give you opportunities to initiate spiritual conversations with them or to invite them to church. If you're an employee, if you're done with your work for the day, what would it look like for you to go to your coworkers and say, hey, how can I serve you before I leave? If you're a boss or if you're in a position of leadership, what would it look like for you to go ask your employees how you can serve them? Some of you in here are in positions of leadership, and you need to become much more of a servant leader. You know, we hear the word servant leader thrown around a lot, but nobody really defines it. What servant leadership is, is servant leadership is taking initiative for the benefit of others. Taking initiative for the benefit of others. Now, we love it when we see servant leadership on display. We love it when we see, you know, Elon Musk, who's a billionaire. We love to see him, you know, working on the factory line at his, you know, the place that he owns. We love seeing the war movies where the guy who's leading the army is at the front of the charge, sort of like William Wallace in Braveheart. Even though it might be a little bit of a photo op, we love to see pictures and videos of presidents visiting troops and serving them food in the cafeteria. We love it when we see people actually show servant leadership. Men, what if you started to serve your family by taking more leadership? What if you started to serve your family by taking more leadership? You see, one of the biggest downfalls of men is that we tend to be lazy when it comes to taking the initiative for the benefit of others, but we have no problem taking initiative for the benefit of ourselves. And so some of you men in here, you work hard at work. And praise God, you absolutely should work hard at work. But your family is on autopilot. You are not taking initiative for the benefit of your kids. You are not taking initiative for the benefit of your wife. Your wife's not happy. She's not flourishing. But you don't care. As long as she doesn't nag you, cheat on you, or leave you, you're fine. Men, you were meant to be the leader, but you were meant to be the servant leader. Someone who takes initiative for the benefit of your family. J.D. Greer, who is a pastor at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, he says this. He says, Spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do. And so men, you can do this. You can take initiative for the benefit of your family. By God's grace, he will allow you to step into this role well. And for women, one of the most loving things that you can do for your husband, one of the best ways that you can serve your husband is by calling him up and out of his passivity. 
Graciously and lovingly call him up and out of his passivity. Encourage him to take more of, the, more of a role of a servant leader. For ladies who may be in a dating relationship or who are looking to be in a dating relationship, I say this to our college students often, that I want to encourage you to set the bar high. If you set the bar low when it comes to looking for a man, then you are going to find plenty of little boys who are going to be happy to jump over it. But if you set the bar high, then by God's grace, many of the men will rise to the occasion. You know, a red flag in the dating relationship is when the other person only seems to want to serve themselves. Plenty of young men, even men who are listening to me right now, are so concerned with serving themselves physically that they fail to set boundaries. These young men fail to set physical boundaries because all they want to do is serve themselves. All they want to do is serve themselves physically or with their time or with their money. And this will certainly carry over into the, day, into the marriage relationship. And so, you know, I want to challenge all of you this week to think about how you can, in your relationships, ask the people that you're around, what can I do to serve you? Serving others is what Jesus has commanded us to do in this passage. So I want to take a second here to address a little bit of an uncomfortable topic. Um, so, so we live in a consumer culture. Our culture says that everything is about you and everything is about your comfort and your convenience and your happiness. You know, many of you in here have probably been on a cruise. And cruises, you know, I've been on just two. We went on my honeymoon. It was wonderful. Um, cruises are wonderful because, you know, everyone just serves you all the time. You know, people are cleaning up after you when you eat. They're, they're leaving a folded towel in the shape of an animal on your bed. They're, they're taking you from island to island. This is what we love. I mean, this is sort of what Americans tend to want. But the problem is that we tend, since this is sort of our consumer culture, many of us tend to naturally think that attending church is a place where you can just show up and consume and receive. Do we at Two Cities Church desire to serve you? Yes. But do we exist primarily to serve you? No. We exist to serve one another. We do not exist to serve you. We, all of us here, exist to serve one another, to kneel at the feet of our brothers and sisters in Christ in service. There's a rule in, in organizational science called the 80-20 rule. And basically what this rule says is that in most organizations and companies, about 20% of the people end up doing about 80% of the work. Now, thankfully, like I just want to celebrate, that does not seem to be the case in our church. So many of you are so generous with your time, with your energy. You are faithful to serve here. You are faithful to serve in your community group and in the city. But we cannot accomplish everything that God has called our church to accomplish if all of us are not in the fight. We will serve our city best if we are servants, not critics. You should be a servant and not a critic. You see, what a critic does is a critic is an expert in all that is wrong. A critic sees the problem, but he wants someone else to solve the problem. A servant is someone who moves toward the problem and tries to solve it. Now, when it comes to serving, listen, if you're new or if you just went through a really hard season, then please just take some time, breathe, rest. But some of you have been coming here for one year, for two years or three years, and you're still just not in the fight. 
And so what I want to do today is I just want to invite you in and say, please, come, get in the fight. Join a community group. Join a DNA group. Find an area in the church that you can serve. Find an area in the community that you can serve. Disciple a younger believer. There are so many ways that you can serve. Please, come on in. There's room in the fight. We exist to serve one another. We exist to take initiative for the benefit of others. So as we begin to wrap things up here, I want to redirect our attention back to the motivation for our service of others. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Christians, is your life marked by serving others? Do you give more than you take? What are some things that you can do this week to take initiative for the benefit of your friends or for your neighbors or for your family? Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so to the non-believer, for, for those who do not call yourselves a Christian, do you realize that Jesus came to serve you by dying in your place for your sin, do you realize that only Christ can make you clean? You say, Jesus does not say, clean yourself up and then come. Jesus says, come, and then I'll clean you up. Jesus says, only I can make you clean. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. We had probably 60 or 7 people there. And at the end of the service, we would often sing the song called Nothing But the Blood, which, which we sing here sometimes. And the lyrics of this song have a, lot of, have a lot of ties to this passage that we see here in John 13. And so the song says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then it says, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There's no other fount that I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Only Christ can make you clean. If you would, bow your heads with me. If you're watching online, feel free to bow your heads as well. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I believe that the psalm that I'm about to read right now is a healthy prayer for you to pray to God. And so as I read these words, I want to invite you to just pray this to God yourself. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me.
Father, I thank you that you are the Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life to make way for us unclean people to be made clean in your sight. Father, I pray that as we end this series on identity, that you would allow the people in this room to just rest, to just rest in the identity that you have given them in Christ. That in Christ they are loved. In Christ they are valued and accepted and wanted and forgiven. Father, I pray that you would just let the people in this room and those watching online feel that in a fresh way. Father, I pray that you would enable us, that you would enable us to be faithful worshipers, that we would worship you and not the creation. I pray that you would enable us to be committed to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would make us committed to witnessing, to sharing the gospel with our friends, with our family. Father, enable us to be good stewards of all that you have given us. And Father, I pray that you would enable us to be a people who give more than we take. I pray that you would enable us to be a people who serve others well. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.